We're going to continue here uh, again with another story, another parable that Jesus taught and unpack actually a couple of them here this morning. We'll do two in one and enjoy learning and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Some of you have probably heard the Latin proverb, he who lies down with dogs rises with fleas. And that's uh, no shot at dogs or dog owners, just want to, it's a Latin proverb. It's a good word of caution that we should watch the company we keep. But can you always tell what a person is made of by the company he or she keeps? The old adage, birds of a feather flock together, does have significance when we're talking about like attracting like. But what I find interesting is that those who were the most unlike Jesus seem to be attracted to him. And those who professed to be righteous were jealous of him when we read these stories in the Bible. Go with me to Luke chapter 15, and we read an incident that took place very similar to what, uh, what I've been describing here. Those that were unlike Jesus were attracted to him, while those that professed to be righteous were jealous of him. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Notice what the doctor says here. Then draw, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees were insinuating that Christ liked to associate with those who were clearly sinners and that he was indifferent and that he was insensible to their lifestyle. Perhaps they were suggesting here birds of a feather. They made this accusation because of jealousy and they were jealous because a man like Jesus, a righteous man, a good man, should have been keeping company with the likes of them, the religious folk, but he wasn't. He was instead giving attention to and working among an altogether different group of people. These uh, religious leaders who said that they were the guardians of society were mad because that he whose life of purity had often awed and condemned them continued to extend sympathy to these social, what they considered to be social outcasts. Now, the Pharisees, they were just mad at the fact that those who never came to church would go and listen to Jesus. It was a paradox for them that they couldn't understand. Those who considered themselves paragons of righteousness felt uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus, whereas those who made no claim to righteousness whatsoever, they felt curiously drawn to Jesus. What made these two groups of people different? Well, first of all, the Pharisees, they were hypocrites. Pharisees and the scribes were hypocrites, and the publicans and the sinners, they didn't have any pretense. This, this created that divide between the two groups. One class felt no need, while the other class felt their need of, of righteousness. One was content with their own righteousness, while the others knew it had no righteousness to offer at all. These religious leaders often felt condemnation in Jesus' presence. And we would do well to ask ourselves occasionally how we fare, how we feel in the company of Jesus ourselves. Now, I'm sure 
What sideswiped the Pharisees of that day was the fact that they were uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus and these sinners, these bad people, were not. Instead, they were attracted to him. The religious folk couldn't understand why. This perplexed them. They couldn't get it. But they overlooked the fact that the answer to their quandary was in the very accusation itself that they made in verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man does what? Receives sinners. He receives sinners. That was the answer to their quandary. Why were these folk coming to him? Why were they attracted to him? Because Jesus received them. That's a different word than accepted them. He simply received them, you understand. They received, Jesus received these individuals. Jesus received them. Jesus welcomed them while others were condemning them. He, was, he had his arms wide open to receive them while others were gossiping about all the bad stuff that they were doing. He treated them like they were children of God, uh, no longer estranged from the Father, not forgotten by the Heavenly Father. I was sitting in a Bible study um, back in Pennsylvania. We were talking about how we should relate, Christians are to relate to individuals, people in the world. How do we get along? How do we connect with folk? How do we lead them to Jesus? And we're talking about this concept of even folk who know better, even in the church who've fallen away, fallen back to their previous lifestyle and into some gross sin. And typically when they do that, they're getting involved in something deeper than before. Um, it's just the way it actually goes, unfortunately. She says something that, that caught my attention, and, I, and I, I'm paraphrasing here. She said, when someone falls into sin, we don't need to get mad at them. We need to feel sorry for them, just like parents feel when their children scrape their knee on the ground or how we feel when a family member or a friend has fallen sick. When this happens, you don't scold them, do you? You care for them. Powerful words I've never forgotten, words that we ought to remember. The spiritual leaders of the day in Jesus' day could have learned these things from the very document that they professed knowing the Bible. They forgot about Psalms 119 verse 176 where it says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. What about Micah? Chapter 7 and verse 18, where it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the heritage or the remnant of his heritage? They should have known what the Bible said. They should have been treating others well. But Jesus didn't seek to remind them about those particular scriptures because they knew them very well. They just weren't applying them. Instead, he appealed to them from life experiences in Luke chapter 15 which means it's okay for us to do the same thing from time to time when we're, when we're reaching out to somebody else. In chapter 15 of Luke, we find three parables that are taught by Jesus. You have the parable of the lost sheep. You've got the story of the lost coin. And thirdly, you've got the story of what we typically commonly say, the, the, the story of the prodigal son. But really, it's a story about the lost sons, plural. And we'll talk about them next week. In chapter 15, we have these three parables that each person in the crowd listening to Jesus that day could have easily related to. So what's their connection to the present situation that Jesus is experiencing? Why and what do they teach you and I today? Let's go to verse 3 of Luke chapter 15 and let's take a look. And he spake this parable unto them and we'll read verse 4 too, saying, what man of you having an hundred sheep 
If he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it. Now in the uplands of Perea, the raising of sheep was a very common occupation. And for that day to have about a hundred sheep was pretty impressive. And here in this particular story, one is lost, which may seem a little insignificant to you and I, but one loss brought serious concern to the shepherd. For example, the loss of one sheep in that day to an eastern shepherd would make an appreciable difference in the shepherd's income. So the loss affected the shepherd's livelihood. But more than that, eastern shepherds commonly knew each sheep that they cared for by name. They knew them by name, not just as a part of the others, but just as itself. So the loss to the shepherd was also very personal. How do, the sheep, how do sheep get lost? <laughs> well, we know sheep are dumb animals, and they just get lost through ignorance and foolishness of their own devising. This one is lost, and once the sheep is lost, they just cannot find their way back. Let's continue reading here, and we're jumping over to verse 8. We're looking at two stories of the three today, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Verse 8, either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? The coin in this particular parable is a drachma, which is three grams of silver, which was the wage of a farm laborer. And uh, it was probably a part of her dowry or maybe uh, her own savings that she was going to pass on to her daughter at the time of her marriage. So the loss of the coin resulted in serious problems. To lose one coin was serious business and could easily change one's future prospects from being hopeful to being downright dreadful. So what do these two parables mean? What, what, what is Jesus driving at here? What was Jesus talking about? And how do they relate to the challenge that, 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 that was made to Jesus by these religious leaders who questioned his motives about the, about the company that he was keeping? They charged him with eating and drinking with sinners and with publicans. Well, first of all, what we need to know is that each parable is not complete in of itself. Uh, each parable speaks to the different aspects with relation to the problem of sin that humanity has, because we all have the problem, everyone has the problem of sin. When you talk about sin, it levels the playing field. Everyone deals with guilt, everyone uh, is a sinner. This is something that all of humanity deals with. So these stories tackle the question of sin, the problem of sin, from a different perspective. And not only sin, but it also deals with the glorious propositions of, or proposition of salvation. So each of these parables looks at the problem of sin and the proposition of salvation from a different perspective. So the lost sheep, the lost sheep simply represents those who know they're lost. People who understand that they are far away from home. They're lost, estranged from the flock of God, and they cannot find their way back. They're stuck. And for whatever reason, they've drifted from what they've known to be right. They've gone in search of greener pastures. But you know what happens when you go looking for greener pastures, don't you? 
The grass is never greener on the other side, right? It's just as green as it was on the previous side of the fence, other side of the fence. They'd gone in search of greener pasture, hadn't realized that the grass wasn't going to be greener. It left them lonely. It left them feeling helpless. It left them feeling defenseless without the shepherd's protection and salvation, you see. The lost coin, the lost coin represents those who are lost and they don't know that they are. The lost sheep, they know that they're lost. They just can't find their way back home. The lost coin, they don't know that they're lost. A coin is an, an inanimate object. Can't think, can't feel, can't re- reason, ration, uh, rationalize anything. It's just an inanimate object. Uh, these represent individuals perhaps that have become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's hard to penetrate that because folk are used to just doing their thing. The love of the world and all that it has to offer has hardened their hearts. They can't see their true condition and therefore they don't sense their need and they're not looking for help, really. And notice, in the parables, it's interesting, one has become lost outside the house and the other one is lost where? In the house. It's much, very similar to what we talked about last week. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the appeal to the great feast. The man who prepared a feast told his servants to go out, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There can be lost folk in the church. And then he said, okay, some have come, not all are responding, so go out. Go outside and bring them in. So you have one that's lost in the house in these two stories and one that's lost outside of the house. One is out there and one is in here. But notice, besides why they're lost, not only the reason why they're lost, but a caring shepherd and a careful uh, housekeeper, wife, she's looking after the home, is searching with determination and perseverance for the lost sheep and the lost coin. The shepherd and woman both represent our loving, kind, heavenly father who looks for and diligently seeks out his lost children because he cannot stand the thought of even one missing from the kingdom of heaven. That's the God that we serve. Let's talk a little bit more about these stories. The shepherd The shepherd recounts his sheep in the story and he finds one missing. He's bringing them into the sheep pen at night, protect them from wolves and and creatures of the night, brings them in. He counts them, there's 99, one is missing. So what does he do? He goes out, back out into the wilderness, back out into the ravines and the valleys where he took his sheep. He retraces his steps to find that lost sheep you see at the risk of his own, at the, the risk of danger to his own self, his own person. He reaches out, seeks that helpless sheep because he knows that that sheep cannot find its way back home. It's vulnerable out there. And so perhaps he's listening very carefully to the faint bleed of desperation. And this this shepherd will not return until he's found that one lost sheep. And so the great shepherd of mankind has gone in search, friends, of this one rebel planet in the entire universe. He searched it out and he has sought to rescue it from the dominion of sin. And you know, it was no small feat for divinity to lay aside the royalty of heaven and the adoration of angels, but Jesus did for this one dot, pin dot, pinhead dot in the entire universe like a grain of sand in all of the beaches of the world God looked down from his great eternity and decided to search out this one small seemingly insignificant planet why not because he had some financial need invested here in planet earth but because he had a love interest 
Because he had a love interest, he knows our value. He knows our worth. And because he infinitely loves us, he wants to keep company with the likes of you and with the likes of me. It's astounding, amazing, the love that God has for us. And even if there was just one who would say yes on this lonesome rebel planet and reach out his or her hand to the efforts of Jesus to rescue them, he would have died for just that one. Just that one. Just you or just me. Heaven would have paid the infinite price to redeem one. You think you're not valued in the eyes of heaven? Step back and think again about how much God loves you. It is astounding. The incredible cost that heaven has paid to redeem you and I. Now the coin, the coin, you understand, this thing is of incredible value. If you've lost a, a valuable coin, maybe something like a, um, an antique or something from in the yesteryears that has some value to it, you know what this lady must have gone through searching that house looking for something of value in the eyes of God. Everyone has great value. They're precious in God's sight. The coin at the time of Christ, bore the image of the reigning power. And at creation, you and I bore the image of God. Though it's been worn down through the effects of sin, disobedience, the image of God can still be slightly seen in humanity. God desires more than anything to recover the lost coin, you and I, and again impress his image upon it. He has done all that he can to reclaim us. And what a shame it would be to let his efforts be wasted. Well, my friends, both these parables teach three very important things, three very important lessons. First of all, God loves and cares for those that are often despised and graded as of being no good whatsoever to anyone else to save. God loves those who are often despised by others greatly. God loves you and I and cares for us. That's number one. Number two, the tremendous effort this, these parables speak to the tremendous effort that heaven makes to win the loss, to win the lost. Heaven spends a lot of time and effort, resources, spilt blood to reclaim this lost planet. And number three, this parable always also teaches or reveals to us the joy in heaven that is experienced when one person responds to an appeal made to give their heart to Jesus Christ. The rejoicing that takes place in heaven. Both parables end with good news. The sheep is out, they're lost. The coin is in the dirt, the grime of the ground of the house. They're lost. But there's good news. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Notice Luke 15, 5 through 7. And when he found it, this is the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. When he found it, he laid it on his shoulders. Laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents, more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. The lost sheep is found. Good news. And there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Jump over now to verse 9 and 10. Notice. And when she has found it, talking of the woman, talking of the widow, there in her house looking for the coin. When she found the coin, she called her friends, her neighbors. She got on the phone, called them. Rejoice with me. Be happy with me. The thing that I told you I lost, I have found. Likewise, Jesus said, 
I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. The lost has been found. The shepherd doesn't scold the lost sheep that cost him time and effort to rescue. He doesn't drive it. He doesn't push it or prod it all the way home. No, the Bible says he carries it on his shoulders. The coin is found. It's laid dusty and blows off the sediment, places it back where it should belong. And she has no feelings of regret for having gone to the trouble of rescuing that coin. Friend, thank Jesus, thank God that Jesus ends these stories happily. There's a happy ending to these stories, stories of success and not stories of failure. And everyone who will submit to ever be ransomed, Christ will rescue from the pit of corruption and the briars of sin. It doesn't matter what your past has been. It doesn't matter what predicament you might find yourself in right now. There may be someone here today listening in the sound of, to the sound of my voice, knowing they're stuck and they're down deep and they're caught in sin and it's got a firm hold on them and they feel like they're lost and they can't find their way home. This story story tells you that you have a father, a savior who comes after you and rescues you. It doesn't matter where you are. He'll rescue you. He'll place you back in the sheepfold. He'll bring you home. Not the stories of failure. This is a story of success you see. He will save anyone from the grime of this world's delusions and from the dirt of disobedience and sin. Somebody's got to say amen about the things, the wonderful things that Jesus does for, the, for humanity, for the children of man. Jesus is a mighty savior and he will save us to the uttermost. We ought to take courage here this morning, especially those who might feel far from home. Don't think that perhaps God will forgive you. Perhaps he will permit you to come. He doesn't want wait for you to repent he takes his first steps toward you. He loves you and he wants you. And if and he would search for you and he has searched for you with all of his heart, he spent everything in order to rescue you. I don't know how he does it, why he does it, except it's all motivated by love. It's all done because he couldn't stand the thought and can't stand the thought of being in heaven for eternity without you. I know Jesus rescues sinners, you do too. You know he reaches out to you. You know he speaks to your heart. That's what Jesus does for each one of us. He rescues the children of men. He salvages us. Friends, these stories that we've read here this morning teach us that Christianity is not some religion that you belong to where you get together and you pat each other on the back because you're better than other people, because you found God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Christianity presents a God who's been seeking, who's been searching, who's been longing after you before you even knew him or wanted to know him. While we were enemies, the Bible says, Christ died for us. While, friends, we are a community, really. We are a community of the rescued. We are a community of the salvaged. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And our call is to extend that offer to others, you see. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. I mean, you can just stop, sit back and listen, and perhaps you could hear the angels sing. 
Everything is put on hold. They're around, you read Revelation, they're surrounding the throne of God and the angels of God, the 24 elders, the four beasts. They're, they're praising God, adoring Him, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who was and is and is yet to come, the, the, one, the Alpha and the Omega. They're worshiping at His throne. Then all of a sudden on planet earth, someone says, Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm lost. Can you find me? Everything stops. All of heaven is still. They listen to that one plea coming from one weak soul, recognizing that they need a Savior. And they say, Lord Jesus, save me. And all of heaven breaks out in the rapturous music, beautiful music you'd never laid your, your ears have ever heard. All of heaven rejoices because somebody said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm lost without him. I'm blind. I cannot see. Lord, save me. And as Peter cried out as he was sinking into the water, Jesus reached down his hand and picked him up. All it takes is a simple cry. All it takes is, Lord Jesus, you know, I didn't pray, I don't have to be eloquent. Lord Jesus, just save me, help me. And he will step down and he will salvage you and save you and rescue you because he loves you. That's the Savior we serve. We serve a powerful God, one who loves us, one who's done everything to save us. All of heaven rejoices. When one just simply says yes to Jesus Christ, all of heaven breaks out in song and rejoicing for that one who said yes to Jesus. Oh, friends, in that powerful prayer, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. In verse 18, he said, As you have sent me into the world to rescue, to ransom and redeem the world, so I have sent them into the world. Every person that has been rescued by Jesus Christ is called to become a rescuer. Everyone has been called to become a rescuer. Someone said, if you're not a missionary, you're a mission field. Everyone has become called to rescue. Yes, there are some who seem indifferent, some who may not care, yet there are those who sense their need, desperate need of peace, and they need a, reach, need a helping hand to help them up, to help them out in the home. Even in the church, there are those who need assistance. Even in perhaps your own home, some who've drifted, some who've strayed, they need understanding, not scolding. They need grace, not judging. They need patience, not neglect. If we spent time in Gethsemane, if we spent moments lingering at Calvary, we'd see how much heaven values the worth of one, one soul. And heaven stopped its entire program to rescue you and I. You are worth an awful lot in the eyes of God. Heaven has paid an incredible price for your salvation. Don't be here today thinking that you're not worth anything. Don't be here today thinking that your life is not amounting to much or has little value. Know in the stories that we have read today that you are valued, highly valued, in the eyes of heaven. God knows what you're worth. It cost the, the, the life of his dear son. You're valued. You're worth something today. Jesus died that you might live. You're valuable on two accounts. First, he created you. And second of all, he died to redeem you. That's the savior we serve. That's the God that we worship. And he's calling us. He's calling each one of us to be rescuers for him, to lend a helping hand, to reach out to others who, who experience hopelessness in their lives. He's calling for us who know what it means to be rescued, to be salvaged, 
to be an implement in the hand of God to rescue and salvage somebody else for Him. He's calling us to do that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.